Welcome everybody. We are getting ready to begin our study of the book of Habakkuk. In this book, we are going to both study the principles found inside, but also how to obey those principles, how to apply them to our lives today. Before we begin, I want to give you a little bit of a background of the book of Habakkuk. It's really a, a gem of a book found in the Minor Prophets because Habakkuk was a person much like we are. He, he looked at the world around him and he wanted to understand it. He wanted to understand what is God doing, but he didn't understand it. And so Habakkuk asked those questions to God. And this book is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God of those questions as Habakkuk takes his questions to God and then God answers him. Let's read Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up, the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So before we get into the details, I want to give a little bit more of the history of this book. It was probably written in about 640 to 615 BC. Assyria was the main power at that time, and God had already used Assyria to judge the northern Israel kingdom. And now Babylon, otherwise known as Chaldea, was starting to rise up to take its place in international affairs. Habakkuk was really disturbed with the condition of Israel around him. And the theme question in this book, though, God was saying, I'm going to use Babylon to judge Israel. And Habakkuk wants to know, 
How can you use a wicked nation like Babylon to judge us? So we're going to start to take a look at this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk was a prophet. Not much is known about him besides what we see right here in this book. Uh, his name means embracer. And he was prophesying not long before Babylon's invasion of Judah in 605 B.C. Judah is in an active state of rebellion against the Lord. Many other prophets had come and given God's message to his people and warned them, but they refused to listen. They kept on going in their idol worship and in their sins, ignoring what God had told them to do. So as Habakkuk looks at these things, his conscience is anguished. He's very sensitive about sin. In verse 2, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Habakkuk is asking God, why aren't you doing anything about the sins in Judah? Because Habakkuk himself, when he saw these things taking place, he saw the idolatry and the disobedience and disregard towards God's commands. And he was bothered by it. He was troubled. He was troubled in his conscience to see God's people disobeying him. And Habakkuk believed God was a holy God. And so if Habakkuk was troubled, would not God also be troubled when he saw these things? He knew God was holy and God hates sin. And in fact, he himself had the same character quality of hating sin. So his question arises out of his confusion. He knows God is holy, but why is God not acting? Why is God allowing the sinner to go unpunished? And from this, we can start to draw the first applications for us to obey from this passage. And the first one is that we should have a sensitive conscience towards sin. We see this throughout scripture. Jesus, when he saw the temple being violated, people buying and, and selling and, and trading instead of worshiping God. He was bothered by it. He was angry when he saw this sin. In a similar manner, Habakkuk is angry to see the sin of the people around him and nothing seems to happen. What about you? When you see sin around you in the world or even in your own life, how do you react? Do you have that sensitive conscience towards sin that when you see it, it bothers you? God wants sin to disturb us. He wants us to be disgusted by it. Now, in the church today and in many people's lives, tolerance has been glorified. But tolerance, yes, we should love people. We should love them. We should be kind to them. We should be compassionate to them. But sometimes that tolerance goes too far to the point of tolerating and accepting their sin. Or more often, perhaps, tolerating and accepting our own sin. There are many sins in our culture, but none of these sins are things which we should become accustomed to or say they are okay or they are normal. No, it's too easy to be like the sinful world around us. The second application we can get from this passage 
is we really see from Habakkuk he's confused, right? He doesn't know why God is doing what he's doing, and he has doubts about what is going on around him. So what does he do? He asks God, what should you do when you look at the world and you're confused and you have doubts and you wonder why are things like this? Well, sometimes we think, oh, as believers, we, we shouldn't question God, right? We should just blindly uh, accept everything which we see. But the thing is, God did not create blind or deaf people, and he did not make you as a robot either. God gave you a mind, and he expects you to use your mind. Now, sure, certainly, when we question him, it should be with a sincere heart, not a heart to, to challenge him. And in Deuteronomy 6.16, we learn not to test God. But neither is it beneficial for us when we have these confusions to try to hide them and say, well, it doesn't matter. I shouldn't ever have a question. And so we keep it secret. In fact, Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. So if you don't understand something, it's good to ask, okay? That's an application from this passage. If you don't understand, it's good to ask. The very best learning takes place when we ask questions. I myself am a teacher not only of the Bible, but I've taught other things. And when my students come to me with questions, I welcome that because that means they have a heart to learn. But we should take note that the very same question could be asked with sincerity or out of disbelief or even hostility, even a heart to challenge God. Take, for example, the cases of Mary and Zechariah. An angel came to Zechariah and said, you're going to have a child, a son. And so Zechariah asked the angel, how can this be? An angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a son. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be? But if you remember, when Zechariah asked the angel, the angel was not happy. And the angel realized that Zechariah was asking out of a heart of disbelief. And so he said, you will not be able to speak until this child is born. But when Mary asked, the angel welcomed this question. And the angel gave her the answer. It will be from the Holy Spirit who will come upon you. So the angel rebuked Zechariah, but graciously answered Mary. Gabriel must have discerned that Mary was asking out of a sincere desire to learn, while Zechariah was asking out of disbelief. So we don't need to act like something we are not. We don't need to make any have any pretense before God. It's better to openly talk about our feelings to him than to conceal them and pretend to be some super spiritual saint. The third application we see here is that we should have a, a very close relationship with God that's very open so that we can take any problem, any question, any doubt, any confusion, we can bring it in to God's presence when we approach him in prayer. Do you Take your doubts to God. Do you take your confusion to him to seek out the answer? I hope that like Habakkuk does, you will as well. So that covers verses 1 through 4. This is Habakkuk's question. Basically, God, why aren't you doing anything about the sin 
in the community. Well, in verses 5 through 11, we see God's answer. Now, I really love how verse 5 starts. He says, look among the nations and see. Look and see. In fact, this isn't a suggestion. It's a command. God is commanding Habakkuk, look. I'm going to show you the answer, but you need to pay attention in order to see it. In Proverbs 9.10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if you want to be wise, you must study, you must observe, you must pay attention, truly seeking to understand what God is doing. Put another way, when you question God, you must be willing to listen to the answer. Have you ever been around people who love to ask questions but don't like to hear the answer? They're always asking questions to challenge perhaps the authority, maybe the teacher or the boss. But these questions are designed in such a way that they're like, like a sword thrust, like an attack, not a sincere desire to learn. And they ask, 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 but they're not interested at all in the answer. God doesn't want us to be like this. He wants us to, yes, to ask, but then to look and see and understand. We look for the answer. So God listens to Habakkuk's question, and he wants Habakkuk to truly pay attention to what he says. God is the source of all truth, all wisdom, all knowledge. We don't just say, okay, I'm going to come to God and I'm going to vent my frustration. No, the real benefit is when we seek to learn from him. He is the great teacher. So another application here. When you bring your question to God, good, that's step one. But step two, you need to pay attention. You need to listen to see how God will give you the answer. And where do you look? You look to God, not to this world. Open your Bible. Calm your heart. Pray and seek direction and understanding from the Creator who holds all wisdom in His hand. Now we should also take note of the fact that God allows Habakkuk to struggle with this new knowledge. Take a look at verse 5 again. He says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. Be astounded, or some translations say astonished. God knows that Habakkuk, when he knows God's answer, Habakkuk's going to be shocked. He's going to be astonished. And in fact, this is not just an expectation, but this is a, almost like a command, uh, almost even an imperative. You're going to be very surprised when you hear my answer. So God knows his answer is going to cause surprise and astonishment. And he basically tells Habakkuk, go ahead be surprised. Go ahead and react. Go ahead and express your shock at what I'm going to tell you. So here we learn an important lesson about God. He is very happy to have a dialogue with Habakkuk. I want us to take note of that. What is the God or who is the God that we serve? What is he, what is he like? God does not request or demand complete silence. He doesn't say, be quiet. Just, just, you know, close your eyes and just accept. 
You must accept without a word. No. God knows that Habakkuk is going to be shocked by this plan and will not understand it right away. And he's okay to slowly reveal himself and allow Habakkuk to learn through this process. Now, God knew that Habakkuk would ask more questions after this, but he doesn't rush in and give all the answers at once. Habakkuk's first question, why do you allow the evil around you in, in Judah? And God's answer, I don't allow it. I'm going to punish it through Babylon. God knows Habakkuk is going to ask another question. Why Babylon? Aren't they wicked? But he doesn't jump in and give the answer immediately. He lets Habakkuk go through that process of struggling and thinking and bringing those questions back to him. This reminds me a lot of my own father when I was a child and did school. I would sometimes encounter a problem and I would come and say, please help me or please solve this problem. But he would never tell me the answer right away. He wanted me to, to work it out, to struggle through it until I could come to it myself. And that way, it would make it less likely that I would forget the answer later on. You can think of this question yourself. What are the benefits of allowing students to struggle through the process? Right? There's benefits there rather than giving all the answers right away. So basically God's answer we see in verse 6, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And then there's a long description about what the Chaldeans are like. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They are going to execute my justice on Israel. Habakkuk is indeed shocked at God's plan. He doesn't comprehend it. Well, it's the same as us. We often don't understand God's purposes right away, sometimes ever, this side of heaven. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God, he's not a person. He exists outside of all of this world which we see, outside of space, outside of time. He sees all the intricacies of how every single action affects everything else. The smallest pebble tossed into the, the, a pond and the smallest ripples and how everything will affect everything else. At the same time, God is completely good and all-powerful. When Moses asked God his name, do you remember what God said? He said, I am who I am. Not I am who you think I am, or I am who you expect I will be, or not I am who you want me to be, I am who I am. For us, sometimes we think, well, forgive me for saying this, but if I was in charge, right, then I wouldn't do it like that, right? We think that we have a better way. Well, we don't. God is on his throne and he is sovereign. He is omniscient. He sees everything in this world and his way is always best. Now, if Habakkuk could decide on how to deal with it, this is clearly not how he would have decided to do it. And he didn't understand it and he didn't seem to approve of it, at least not immediately. So in the end, there will be times when we don't quite understand what God is doing. 
And it's at those times we have to decide, God, I'll have faith in you, even though I don't completely understand. While we should seek to understand, a lack of understanding is not a good reason for not accepting or not believing what God is choosing to do. So the third thing we see here is that God uses the wicked to accomplish his plans. God's answer to Habakkuk is, I'm going to use the wicked Chaldeans to punish the Jews. Now, interestingly, wicked people do not cooperate with God willingly. God didn't say, okay, who will punish the Jews? And the Chaldeans said, we'll do it, God. We want to follow your will. No, the Babylonians did not even know they were being used by God. Neither did they say, let us go to Judah and punish them for their sins against Yahweh. What were they motivated by? Their own greed, their own selfishness, their own desire for power and control. And yet in verse 11, it says that they're going to sweep through Judah like the wind. Psalms 10, 3 to 6 says, For the wicked man boasts in the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his schemes, there is no God. He is secure in his ways at all times. Your lofty judgments are far from him. He sneers at his foes. He says to himself, I shall not be moved. From age to age, I am free of distress. So these are the type of people that God uses. That's interesting because when we think of the type of person God uses, we think, well, God uses a righteous person or a faithful person, right? But here, he's using wicked people. They are like chess pieces on his board, each one moving and acting according to God's good will. But at the same time, they're, they're following God's will, but they're doing so unknowingly. It's their own choices which they are making, and yet God is sovereign over those choices so that the outcomes are what God plans and desires. And here is one of the most difficult to understand paradoxes, really in the Bible, is that people have a will to choose. People have responsibility f before God for their choices. And at the same time, God is sovereign. God uses sinful people in their own choices in which they have responsibility and still brings about his perfect result. Now, for as a person, I cannot really comprehend this. I can tell my child to, you know, go and, and do some task for me, some errand, and, and he will do it. Well, he's obedient to me. So an obedient child helps accomplish my plan, right? But how about if I tell a sinful child to do something and, and he doesn't do it, and yet that accomplishes what I intended all along? Of course, we, we cannot do that. And our lives do not work in that way. We see many cases in the Bible like this of people who made their own choices, and yet God used those choices for his purposes. The most obvious one is, of course, Judas. Judas decided to betray Jesus. It was sin. It was wrong. He was responsible for it. And yet, through this decision, 
came about Jesus' sacrifice for sins and mine and your salvation. The Roman judges who sought to do the Jews a favor and left Paul in prison for years when he didn't deserve it. What happened? Well, Paul used the time in prison to write the many of the epistles. The Roman judges did not plan for this. They weren't they didn't have some secret goal of furthering the gospel. But this is what happened. God used their wrong decisions to bring about his glory and to expand his kingdom. In, in the Old Testament, also Nebuchadnezzar, we're talking about Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar commanded his subjects to worship the, the graven image, right? And he said, if you don't bow down and if you don't worship this image, you're going to be thrown into the fire. So Daniel's three friends, they refused to do it. They were thrown into the fire. And then what happened? God was glorified. Wow, God was exalted and everybody knew Yahweh was the real God. Did Nebuchadnezzar plan this whole demonstration to, to lead people somehow to, to God? Of course he did not. But this is what God planned to do through Nebuchadnezzar's sinful idolatry. So it really is amazing when you think about what kind of God we serve. It's really incomprehensible. He, in his divine wisdom and omniscience and, and complete power, can use a sinful person making their own choice to accomplish his perfect desire. When I think of, of him, I think of almost like a, a grandmaster, a super grandmaster chess player. He's controlling all the pieces on the board. I like to play chess, and uh, I'm not very good, but... Sometimes when I, I play with someone, maybe a, a really a beginner, then I think, okay, you know, I've got them and, you know, let them play around, let them take their moves. But finally, okay, comes checkmate. Well, when God is playing chess, his, his opposition is Satan. And Satan is taking moves and thinking, wow, I'm doing really, really well. But it's those very moves which Satan thinks are the very best ones that God turns around and checkmates him with. Most notably, the cross. Wow, Satan's greatest victory. The Son of God comes and, and Satan has him put to death. And yet, Jesus rises again and Satan realizes, uh-oh, wow, his victory is assured. Jesus' victory is assured. He checkmated Satan. So, God is sovereign and he's powerful and he uses sinful people and nations even to accomplish his purposes. I think when we look around the world uh, around us today, we can see so much sin and, and many governments which are not following God. And this passage, I think, can be an encouragement to us. God has a plan. He is on his throne and he is going to win. So the first two sections of Habakkuk chapter 1, we have seen Habakkuk presents a question to God. God, how come you are allowing this sin around me in, in Judah to go unpunished. And God says, I'm not. Look and see. I'm going to, to execute justice through the nation of Babylon. Right? So that's the second part. God answers Habakkuk's question. The third part is in verses 12 through 17. And I want to read verse 12 to you now. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. In verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil 
and cannot look at Ra. So we should see again Habakkuk's heart. Habakkuk isn't challenging God. He's not impugning God and saying, God, you have some kind of wrong motive. No, he's saying, God, you are holy and God, you are pure. But that is, in fact, why I don't completely understand what I see around me. So we should, when we do question God or when we bring our confusion to him, I hope that it will be from the angle of, God, I believe you. God, I know you're holy. I know you're, you're just. And I know you're pure. In light of those things I know about you, I don't quite understand what I'm seeing. Help me to understand more fully. Not, God, I see some, some wicked thing and it must be your problem. Not like this. So Habakkuk is, in fact, astonished just as God said he would be. Habakkuk understands God's answer. But he doesn't get the why, the why of it. Why would God choose to use the wicked? It's incomprehensible to him. We can almost see his incredulity seeping through these words that he says. If you go back and read the passage on your own and adding that tone of, of surprise and shock, you might begin to feel how Habakkuk felt. So Habakkuk asked the question, why, three times in this passage. And in fact, his difficulty is something like a modern-day argument against God. Perhaps you've heard an argument like this. A. If God is all good, he would want to end sin and suffering. Right? Makes sense. B. If God is all-powerful, he could end sin and suffering. Right? He can. Makes sense. C. Sin and suffering still exist, so either God is not all good or he's not all powerful. That is how this modern argument goes. Habakkuk doesn't go this far, but in essence he does ask God, saying, God, I know you're good, so why do you allow the wicked to punish those more righteous than they are? So God's answer in the next chapter come back for chapter 2, and you, we will dig into that a bit more, is the same answer that shows the flaw in the above argument. We will look at that answer in depth soon, but meanwhile, suffice it to say that God, in fact, will end sin and suffering. So it's not a question of will he, it's a question of when will this take place. So Habakkuk describes the situation in very vivid terms. Take a look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and he rejoices and is glad. So Habakkuk asks God, God, why do you make men like fish? In other words, don't treat us as fish to be captured by these cruel people, the Babylonians. Remember the fact that at the beginning of the chapter, Habakkuk was bemoaning the fact that God seemed to be silent while the people around him were engaged in sin and rebellion. God then told him that he would not be silent. He's going to punish the wrongdoer. But now Habakkuk's not so sure about this, this punishment. So he's going to ask more questions to God, right? So just as God's job as judge is to deal with sin, 
So it's also right for Habakkuk to plead for his people. So Habakkuk is pleading for mercy and compassion on the part of God. That brings us about to the end of this chapter. So how do we obey? How do we put into practice the principles that we learn here? I believe there will be times when we are confused. Don't just bury it. Neither should you you bring in and challenge God, right? Instead, come to him. Approach the throne of grace. Approach the throne of grace. Tell God honestly, with a humble heart, how you feel. And then look into his word and seek to find those answers. When you have that humble heart, that sincere heart to learn, I believe that God will lead you to the answers. You will grow in understanding. Now, sometimes you might not get the whole answer now. You may not completely understand, right? God is God and we are not. So how can we completely understand his purposes now? But we can grow into greater and greater understanding. At the same time, make up your mind to give God the benefit of the doubt. Even when you don't understand, choose to have faith in him. Uh, that comes to the end of our study in Habakkuk chapter 1. I hope you'll join us in the next video as we look at Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, please don't forget to like and subscribe so you'll get more videos like this, more helpful Bible studies for you. Thank you.